Welcome, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. If you heard the big voice guy on the intro right before here, I am Logan Anderson. Thank you for tuning in. Right now, we have a very, very special guest on the podcast for this episode, and it's literally the guy who wrote the book on sportscasting, the author of The Art of Sportscasting. He's also been the voice of the Chiefs, the Reds, the Rangers, the Cowboys, the Jayhawks, the Cornhuskers, you name them. He's probably been around them to some degree. Tom Hedrick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Nice to talk to you. Things going well with you? Things are certainly going well. Just in the middle of getting used to a new job after a, after going through a little bit of a move. It's never easy, is it? You know, it's a challenge, but it's been a good challenge. It's been a very, very good group here at the new place. But I guess what I like to start off with, with everybody that I have on this podcast is how did you get into the sports casting industry? And since you had such a long career and started almost early in the history of sports casting, so to speak, I'm imagining you have a very interesting story. Well, I got into it uh, when I got cut from my high school baseball team in Newton, Massachusetts. I was the last guy cut. My best two friends made the team. Coach brought me in. He said, now, this hurts me more than it does you. And I said, no, it doesn't, but nice of you to say that. So I walked home. I lived five miles from the high school in Boston. And the first two miles, I said, I want to be a coach. Then I thought about it, and I even said it out loud. I said, no, I don't. I said, I know what Oklahoma does to get better football players in Kansas. I know what they do, and I'm not going to do that. Secondly, in the next two miles, I thought about being a sports writer. But right in front of the Newton Center Library, I paused and said, you know, I'm going to be a sportscaster just like Kurt Gowdy. And I remember I went home that night, told that to my dad, and he kind of looked at me and smiled, didn't say much. My best two friends came over, and they said, well, nobody does that. I said, yes, they do. Kurt Gowdy does it. Well, that's where I started. Now, getting a job, I was a sophomore at Baker University, a Methodist school in Baldwin, Kansas. And my professor took me aside and said, you've got it. I've taught you everything I can. So you either have to transfer to a bigger school, in my opinion, or get a part-time job. Well, I thought about that. And I put together a tape. And I spent, oh, maybe a day putting together, got a resume. Went down a little radio station in Ottawa, Kansas, called KOFO. Talked to a guy by the name of Rod Cup, who was the general manager. Nice fella. I was humble. He said, look, here's the deal. I think you got a nice voice. Don't call us. We'll call you. Well, I went to the Four Corners, and I had two Cokes. And I said to myself, it's obvious you got to blow your own horn. So I drove 10 miles down the road to KLWN Lawrence, walked in. I said, hi, I'm Tom Hedrick of Sophomore Break University. I'm going to be a great sportscaster. You won't be able to hire me in 10 years. And I want to hire, talk to Mr. Booth. Arden Booth owns the station. Well, he came out and said, I've been expecting you. I said, you were? He said, you wouldn't happen to have a tape, would you? I said, yes, I would. That was the era where they had that 40-pound tape machine, the web core. I had it underneath my right arm, practically breaking it. I said, yes, Mr. Booth, I do have. Matter of fact, I do have a tape. We went into his office, and he listened for 10 minutes, and twice he wanted to laugh. And finally he said, I think I've heard enough. And he said, uh, let me ask you something. Can you sell a five-minute show? a 15-minute show in Baldwin, Kansas, for five bucks. I said, oh, yes, I know I can do that. And then he said, would you like to do Lawrence High football? Well, they were the state champions. I said, sure, I'd love it. 
I'll pay you $15 a game to do that. And finally he said, can you do track? I said, oh, that's my specialty. Well, i never done track in my life. He said, I'll pay you $25 a Friday and a Saturday, 50 bucks if you call the relays. Well, I went out and started at 12.30 on a Friday, concluded at 6.15, did the same thing on Saturday, never been on the air in my life, and that's how I broke in. So that's actually how I got to start in broadcasting. So what did your general manager say after hearing your stuff for the first time, after you had kind of tooted your own, own horn, so to speak, without that experience, how did you do? Well, I know what happened. I had two good things going for me. The first thing is, he and my father at this small Methodist school sang together in the Baker University Quartet, so I already had an in. Secondly, his sister lived in Baldwin, and I was doing the PA for the high school in Baker University. Well, she liked what she heard and told Arden, so I got a little bit of an edge, frankly, most people probably would not get. What was that reaction, though, from your manager? Did he say it was good? What did he tell you needed you needed to improve on at that time? Well, he didn't tell me what I needed to improve upon, but what I heard later from his wife, <laughs> he said when I left, and I've, I've had a lot of jobs in this business, I've never had one in which I was so euphoric. I'm, my feet never hit the ground when I went out to the car to drive back to Baldwin. He's, I'm told by his wife that he got on the floor on all fours and started to laugh and said, my God, did you ever see anybody like that in your life with that kind of enthusiasm? And she pointed her finger at him and said, yep, that was you 20 years ago. So, But he, I think he kind of knew what he was getting. <laughs> so what was your first break into the so-called big time where you had to where you were doing Division One major college or the pros. Kind of take us through your progression of where you got to, where you eventually made it to. Well, I went to Kilgore, Texas in 1958 because they were doing football for the junior college and high school. I was there six months. Van Patrick, a great Detroit announcer, had been there one time, and Terry Stemperich, who did the uh, Dallas basketball team in the ABA. Uh, then I went to Hutchinson, Kansas, and so there a year to a day, worked at KWBW for Fred Conger. And when I was 23 years of age, a fellow named Monty Moore, who did four World Series on NBC, called me and said, I'm going to leave the KU Network. I've recommended four people. You're one of the four. Would you send me a tape and a resume? I said, sure. So I went right to my boss, uh, his name was Fred Conger, and I said, Fred, I got a chance to be the voice of the Jayhawks. If I can get that job, I'm going to take it. And it was a little bit of a risk on my part. He said, listen, he said, I, I, I understand that. He said, we'll talk about this. So the next day I came back and he told me, he said, I hope you get the job, and if you don't, he said, I'm going to pay you $10,000 a year because I want you to be happy. Well, Lord, that was making $2,500 more than I made. So I go to KU, and the whole thing was they wanted to know if I could shut up on an interview. That was the first thing, and not yell and scream and holler when I did the games. Well, they heard the tape, and they liked that. So at age 23, I was the voice of the Jayhawks, and I did several other things. I broadcast a newscast from 12 to 12.15, Monday through Friday. I taught an introductory radio television course. I lined up the 35 radio stations for football and basketball, and those were just some of the things I did. I also did highlight films free and tutored some great athletes, but I did that for the lavish sum of $5,400.
<laughs> that is a good story. You also called three different Super Bowls, including the first one. Right. The Super Bowl obviously has changed since then. What was it like calling the first Super Bowl? Did it have the hype that it has nowadays? Oh, no. In fact, a lot of us, Lamar Hunt and I talked, we went out to the game together, and a guy named Ray Evans, and we talked about it. They said, what do you think? Is this thing going to take off? I said, oh, I think it will. I think pro football is such a great thing. But no, it was not the same thing, and I'll just give you an illustration. I went out there about four days early, and I called a PR guy with the Packers, and I said, can I talk to Bart Starr one-on-one on Friday? He said, yeah, come on up there to training camp. So a writer by the name of Bob Henson and I got Bart Starr for 45 minutes one-on-one, and he couldn't have been nicer, never rushed me or anything like that. And I remember right before the football game, they sang the national anthem. They had a band come in. You could buy a 40-yard line ticket for about 15 bucks. We were on two different networks. Uh, NBC was carrying with Kurt Gowdy, and Ray Scott was doing a play-by-play on CBS, and I was on CBS radio. So, yeah, I thought it would take off, but it was a whole different ball game. Super Bowl II, Goodwin, the one I remember most memorable, of course, was Super Bowl IV because I was the broadcaster of the Kansas City Chiefs, and that was just a great thrill to be able to do that. And I remember going down. I remember how the guys were before Super Bowl One. They were just glad to be in the Super Bowl. Super Bowl Four. I sat next to Buck Buchanan on the bus coming back from a workout, and I said, what do you think? He said, listen. This is going to happen. We're going to play the triple stack. We're going to take their center, knock them in the nickel seats. So don't worry about it. We're ready to play. Lenny was very much the cool guy. They claim he was involved with the gamblers, which he was not, but there was great pressure on him to perform. And when the Chiefs got a 9 nothing lead, Sean Center would kick that field goal of 47 yards. I said, oh, we're going to win this game. And then we ran a power trap off to Mike Garrett and had the lead at halftime. They did go downfield, Minnesota did, for the length of field. And then the Chiefs came back and threw a 46-yard pass to Otis Taylor, and the game was over. But, yeah, the hype was entirely different. The atmosphere was entirely different. And when I see what they have to do today, I said, I'm glad I came along when I did. Do you remember what that conversation with Bart Starr was about? Uh, the confrontation? I remember the conversation. He that's, was so that's good. What I meant. He was always a class act. He, he told me what he thought of his football team, about his line, his defense. He was always the guy that took care of the other people. He talked about Coach Lombardi. He always called him, nothing else than that. And I remember I was scared to death because I had never done color in my life. And now I get the big network job because Hank Sram actually talked to the general manager and president of CBS, Bill McPhail, putting me on the broadcast as a color analyst. Remember, I'd never done that. So an hour before the game, we're sitting up there atop the Coliseum, and for the first time in my life, I was scared before I went on the broadcast. And a guy named Jack Drees, the guy who was the play-by-play guy, turned to me, and he said, what's up? And I told him, he said, listen, if you weren't good, you wouldn't be here. Now, I'm going to give you two tips. Number one tip is you don't have to talk between every play. Some color analysts should take that and say, you know, a two-yard gain is only a two-yard gain is only a two-yard gain. They're right. So you don't have to comment between every play. And secondly, don't act as if you were a coach or player. You weren't. But give me either a really good quote or some pertinent stats. Well, in that game, I kept two stats. I kept the turnover, and that was 4-1. to one. Green Bay took uh, 
four away from Kansas City. Chiefs had only one takeaway. The other thing I kept that day was third down percentages. Bart Starr goes nine for 13. Lenny Dawson went three for 12. But that first, during the first Super Bowl, was one of the most memorable things, and I learned some very important things from it. You jumped around a little bit. Obviously, we're the voice, as we mentioned, of a lot of very good teams. The Chiefs, the Cincinnati Reds, the Texas Rangers, Dallas Cowboys, Kansas Jayhawks, Nebraska Cornhuskers. What made you keep wanting to move on to a different challenge so frequently when I mean, you already had some very, very good jobs. What was the lure? Well, I moved from uh, Lawrence, Kansas in 67 in Lincoln, Nebraska, for two basic reasons. I'd never been in television, and I figured I was going to be in the business I had to. Now, I worked at KCMO doing the broadcast on the radio, but that was never going to lead to a TV job. So I was blocked by that. So I had to learn the TV business. Secondly, the new head football coach at Kansas, Pepper Rogers, was not going to let me do the Chiefs and broadcast KU. He was one of those anti-pro guys. So when a friend of mine by the name of Bob Zetter died, I attended his funeral and went to the what they call the Cornhusker Hotel in Lincoln, sat between a fellow named Don Bryant and Bob Devaney, the great football coach, and I said, you know, you're not going to replace a guy like Zetter. I said he was the very best. They said, no, they tell me you're the best at Devaney. But you wouldn't consider coming to Nebraska because you're married to your wife. I said, I'm married to my wife and not the University of Kansas. So I wound up going there because I needed the TV business. Then I came down to Kansas City after three years in Lincoln because I needed to get in a big market, which I did. And then on February the 1st, that was 1971, I got a phone call from Ken Fouts about how to do it. Would I be interested in doing the Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine? My response was, I said, well, I hate to be greedy. How many games do you do and how much do you pay? He said, we do 40, 45 games, play $950 a game. I said, yeah, you better I'd be interested. And they said, you can keep the Chiefs. I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, send me a tape. I'd like to have you have any Major League Baseball. I happen to have about six tapes. I said, yeah. I did a KU Kansas State basketball game. I did an interview, and I sent that to him. That was on a Tuesday. And he said, call me by Friday at uh, 4 o'clock, and we'll talk about this. And I did, and lo and behold, I had the job. Now, what I found out later was my friend Bob Starr had cold-cocked a uh, president and general manager of a San Francisco TV station. He got blackballed. I think they wanted to hire him, so I got that call out of the blue. I was there two years. Then they changed brewers, and so in Cincinnati, that happened several times, and I really loved my 71-72 campaigns there. But what happened was, as they changed breweries, they changed announcers every two years. So consequently, I wound up going to Dallas, Texas. Then in 75, several of my friends wanted me to come back to Lawrence. My wife wanted to come back here. She had gone to school here. And so I wound up being the voice of the Jayhawks for the second time. That really is a fascinating story. How did you get into, I know you said the first time you were teaching was, part of that first job with the Jayhawks. What did you fall in love with about teaching and the academic side of sportscasting? Well, my mom and dad were teachers. My father was on the faculty of Boston University School of Theology for 25 years. He was a colleague of Dr. Martin Luther King and a good friend of his. He always called him King. So he was a teacher, and he was not only a teacher but a theologian. 
my mother was a high school drama teacher, music teacher. So it was one of those things where I just kind of liked it, and I knew I was good at it, and I knew I was articulate, and I knew I had great students. For example, I had two pretty good students you've heard of, Will Chamberlain. I was a disc jockey for him. He had a weekly show we put out there in Gale Sayers, Galloping Gale, as I used to call it. But there was something about that I liked helping other people and helping kids. And, you know, I take a look at the – I have 82 different guys or gals who've gone out there in the profession. And one of the great things to me is when I hear Kevin Harlan on a Sunday calling a game on CBS. He's one of my guys. Uh, I used to hear Gary Bender, who worked for CBS and ABC. He, again, is one of my guys. Bill Curtis on A&E, when I see that, he's one of my guys. I can keep on naming him, but – it, to me, the thrill is to see your people out there doing better financially than you did. What makes a great mentor as everyone's always looking for one in this business? And you know what? Everybody, I, I've had people ask me for advice as low on the ladder as I am right now. And I don't always know what to do and how to do that. What makes a great mentor since you've been a mentor to some of the greats? My mentor was Marty Moore. Monty Moore was a great broadcaster from the University of Oklahoma. His father-in-law was the basketball coach down there, Bruce Drake. And I was not going to go back to KU the second semester to get my master's degree. My father did a wise thing. He just said, have you ever quit anything important before? I said, no. Why would you quit this? He said, will there be a job? I said, oh, yeah, there will be a job. But the job I was going to get in Hutchinson, Kansas, was a pretty good plum. But he said, you know, this might come important in your career, and it did in the second half of my career. It saved me financially. But there was just something about teaching I liked, and the mentor I had was Monty, and Monty was, oh, boy, you talk about tough. He was Vince Lombardi tough. And if I sat there and didn't give the score for five, five, and everything, he'd get on my case. If I repeated a phrase, the same thing. If I talked too fast, he would. And he wasn't afraid to tell me, Matter of fact, when he said, I want you to get the job, he lined it up so I got the job. But then he told me, he said, you know, you're really good in football, I mean in basketball and baseball, but not as good in football. I took heed to that. We were very good at that time. Kansas was in football. We had John Hadle and Curtis McClinton and Burt Cohn, and we had a really good football team. Matter of fact, we were ranked number one in 1961 for the season by Playboy magazine. But... The thing he told me, he said, you need to work on your football. Well, I never played the game. So for two and a half months, I would go down Monday through Friday at 1.30 to 3.30. I would get a speed card, the depth chart of Oklahoma and Kansas, go talk to an assistant coach, what was the game plan, and I would call the game. So getting a mentor, you need somebody who knows you and is going to be honest with you. I mean, I've been mentored to several people, and the biggest thing I always do when they send me a tape or I hear them or I see them, they'll say, how do you think I'm doing, Coach? And I say, how do you want it? You want to feel good today or you want the truth? I can give it to you either way. And they always respond by saying, we're counting on you to tell us the truth. So when you had students like Kevin Harlan, Gary Bender, all as freshmen in their class before they're polished and ready to be what they eventually became. What traits did they show that maybe led you to believe they could be great? Well, it starts with the work ethic. Uh, Kevin Harlan, oh, my gosh, he was out there working weekends when he was in college. 
He wasn't chasing the co-eds. He wasn't drinking beer. He was out there working weekends at Channel 13 in Apica, went to ESPN, and as a junior and a senior, he was working as a pro game host and also the announcer on the Kansas City Chiefs. Same thing about Bender. If I asked Bender to do something, he said, hey, you and I are going to do a football game between Tonganoxie and a football team down the street, we're Oskaloosa. We're going to wind up doing it from a telephone pole, and we're going to do that on a Friday night. And he would be there. The great ones never turn down a job. In other words, you can count on them. That's the first thing a great sportscaster has to have. Secondly, there's a voice. There, I can tell from a kid maybe talking five or 15 minutes if he's got the right kind of voice. And the final thing they have to have, there's a kind of a look in those kids' eyes. They are killers like good athletes. You can say something to a good athlete. They will give you a pablum quote, but look at their eyes. They are killers. Sayers was like that. Uh, Jim Ryan, who was a great runner at age 19, he was a world record holder in three different events. Uh, you take a look at Lenny Dawson, the great quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, MVP in Super Bowl Four. Those guys that are good have a kind of a look, and you can just tell they can do it. And, and they're also a little bit of a pain in the rear end, but that's okay. Uh, you're willing to do it. But I can always spot a kid if he's really got it. I can spot them, and I'll know within three or four weeks that they can do it, or conversely, if they don't really want to do it. What do you tell to the people who you can tell, see right away that they're not going to make it? I, I tell them the truth. Uh, any kid will tell you who's ever had me as a professor, they'll come to me, and I know what I call a, a senior stare, junior stare. They're waiting outside my office, and I look at them. I can tell exactly what they want, and I bring them to my office. And I've got a kid named Nate Bucati right now who's working in Kansas City, doing a great job as the voice of the, uh, the <clears throat> soccer team there. He's also doing a great job as a host of the radio program on KSFT at an 810 radio here in the city. But this kid said to me, and after we had a conference on two different occasions, he said, I'm going to do this. And I said, I don't think you can do it because your voice is not good enough. He came back on both occasions and said, okay, I'm going to do this. Now, you can either help me or not help me. And I said, I'll help you, but I'm going to tell you again, I don't think you're going to be good enough. The voice is not going to be strong enough. Well, he's got two very good jobs. And I always tell him, prove me wrong. But what he's got is he's got a work ethic. He's got a good on-air personality. He's the type of guy that's not going to take no for an answer. Now, that's not an easy thing to tell a kid. In fact, perhaps the most difficult dialogue I ever had with any student was Terry Shockley. Terry Shockley and Gary Bender roomed together as master's degree candidates at the University of Kansas. Now, when I heard those two guys on a football game, a freshman game between KU and Kansas State, I went out in the country and listened to my car. And I said to myself, oh, my goodness, I know what I've got. I've got one guy that can do it. I've got another guy that does everything right, but he doesn't have the voice. So lo and behold, the next day, Terry Shockley, the one who didn't have the big voice, came into my office. He said, what do you think? And I remember going to the water cooler, and I said to myself, you square with this kid. You tell him the truth. So I did. I said, Terry, you have everything it takes for one thing I'm concerned about. You have the work ethic. Your grammar is outstanding. Your preparatory skills are number one. You're organized like nobody I've had. But the one thing you don't have, in my opinion, is the voice that's going to get you the second job. 
And I remember how deflated he was. And then I proceeded to say, look, but you're going to be a great general manager and owner, so you're going to be able to buy and sell sportscasters. Well, I can still see him walking out of my office. Came back on Monday, and I said, we're going to go to lunch. You didn't hear the second part of what I told you. And I reiterated that. Well, lo and behold, that happened. He went to Parsons, Iowa, got a nice job. Then he went to Madison, Wisconsin as a salesman, Three years later, became the GM, and five years later, sold that television station. Well, the story that's great about that story is Terry Shockley sold six television stations for $200 million. So he could hate me forever, but I always told kids the truth. And, and like I say, the phrase I use, you want the truth, you want to feel good. Obviously, you don't need to say names on any of this, but with some people who had the talent and had the drive and maybe didn't make it for whatever reason, what were some of the common traits you saw that that kind of got people to go off the tracks? In other words, go into another field? Or just give up on, on yeah, the field okay. in general? <clears throat> well, I had a young guy. His name is Brian Purdy. I just had lunch with his dad today. He was a great football coach in the state of Kansas. Brian Purdy had as good a voice as Kevin Harlan. He really did. And we sent him out to Garden City, Kansas. They hired him for thirty-five grand a year. Then he made forty-five. Then he made fifty. And he was a great play-by-play guy. But he went for a job, and he didn't get it because the guy decided he wanted to come back at Wichita. And I said, "Look, you can do one of two things: you can wait around and hope the KU job comes open, or K-State or Wichita State, and they may or may not for ten years, or you can go a different direction." Well, he became a general manager. And a great one. He now lives in Dallas and is a head honcho and runs 250 radio stations. So obviously he's taken the advice, and I wouldn't tell anybody, but he's kind of like my son. And he's got a better, I think, a situation than he's ever had in his life. Another young guy named Jim Holly. Holly had a major league voice. He was in that same class with Kevin Harlan. And he went out to Salina. I helped him get the job back. The GM knew him and had him as an intern. He hired him, and for two or three years he did that. Then all of a sudden his dad was a preacher, a Lutheran minister, and consequently he got the call and he became a minister. So those things happen, and I'm not afraid to tell somebody, said, try it. You may like it, you may not. If you don't, try something else. What made you decide to write the book, The Art of Sportscasting? <laughs> well, you can credit Joe Castiglione, the voice of the Red Sox, with that one. I was sitting in my office one day in June, and Joe, who thinks one of the great guys of all time and outstanding announcers, he said, Parrot, he said, we need to get a book out there. There's not a book on the market that really tells a kid as a sophomore in college how to do it. And I said, Joe, that's a ball buster. He said, I want you to do it. you got the time. Well, I thought about it two days. Called him back. I said, I'm going to do that. So then I embarked on that, and what I did was I interviewed, when it was all said and done, 91 different sportscasters. I did several people twice, like John Rooney, who does the voice of the Cardinals, Bobby Costas, Kevin Harland, several people I did twice. Jim Dance I did twice. Monty Moore I did twice. Kurt Gowdy I did twice. But I wanted to get what everybody thought about the business, the voice, the style. How do you get there? Uh, should you go a small market? Should you go a big market with an intern? Whatever. But I wrote it because I was teaching a class at KU, and there wasn't a textbook that was really, I thought, a really good textbook. Uh, one of my uh, guys, Gary Bender, has a good book, but I always thought 
His book said basically, this is the only way. My book says, this is what Costas does. This is what Harlan does. This is what Jim Nance does. Now, you've got to get your own style. That's why I wrote the book. So you touched on that a little bit, but I'd like you to expand on it because textbooks are known as being, you know, black, white. This is what you do. This is how this works. Our business is so subjective in so many ways. How are you able to, you know, make a blueprint on how to get there despite there being so many different directions to go and not really just one proper way to do things? I think the greatest thing that happened, I went to a small school, and we didn't have a radio station. So I used to broadcast games to myself. I actually went across the campus. I did the Red Sox against the Yankees. I'd recreate it and sit there and broadcast it. And I remember one day I went to my fraternity house, and everybody was laughing. I walked in about 12.05, and they said, you were discussed today in class. I said, what class? They said, abnormal psychology. And everybody started to laugh. I said, yeah. What did the professor say? He said, do you think he's crazy for broadcasting games to himself? Well, the guy was my next-door neighbor when I was a youngster. He said, no, he's doing two things. Number one, he'd like to be an athlete, but he doesn't run or jump or throw or hit the home run, so this is a substitute goal. Secondly, he said he really wants to be good. He's motivated. So, no, I don't think he's crazy at all. Well, that's a pretty good scouting report. Uh, that's exactly what got me going. And the other thing is, going to the small school, everybody told me I was going to be great. And you know, you hear that often enough, and you become better than you maybe thought you could. So I never doubted that I was going to do this. And my thought was, when I went out, I said, get yourself a job where they have play-by-play. Don't worry about the hours. Don't worry about the money. The first job I took in Kilgore, Texas, $75 a week, 15% sales commission, and I loved it because I called four or five basketball games a week and a couple of football games. There's no one way to get there. You simply have to say, this is the way I'm going to do it, roll up your sleeves, pay the dues, and get it done. You know, that's an interesting comment that you mentioned when you went to Baker Small School. People told you you were going to be great, and I've written about that on my blog a lot of times that can be detrimental where people are telling you you're better than you are. Did you ever have a moment where you thought you were better than you were and you got knocked off the pedestal, so to speak? Well, the only time I ever got, I wasn't down, but I was a little discouraged at the time was when the change came in Cincinnati. That was a tough deal. I was working with Wade Hoyt, the old Yankee pitcher room with Babe Ruth, I thought we were doing a good job, and probably I was better suited, frankly, to be a radio guy than TV guy, although I was able to get four top ratings in four different markets, Cincinnati, Kansas City, Lincoln, and Dallas, Texas. But the fact remains is when that happened, and I was out of a job for not very long, maybe two weeks, you kind of say, well, should I continue to do this? At that time, I had three different job offers. One was in St. Louis, Missouri, Dallas, Texas, and Denver, Colorado, but I favored Dallas because I knew the market, knew the people, and really liked the weather down there. But that was the only time I ever doubted myself. I think in this business you have to say, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. And I would tell people in the interview. I remember going to Boston one time, and WBZ called me, and they wanted a what they call a new Howard Cosell. I'm not Howard Cosell. And I told the guy that. I said, I'm not going to pick on your left fielder. Tommy Harper, who I had as a minor leaguer because he's got a weak arm in left field. I'm not going to do that. And the other thing is, I said, I'm going to ask you, 
even though you have a three-year contract, you still vote every six months, yay or nay, if you're going to keep the talent or not? Do you still do that? I can still see that general manager. He couldn't believe I knew that. No, I never doubted my ability. I, I knew I was willing to work, and that's the whole thing. All right. Well, we will switch to just telling stories here about some of the people that you've dealt with that, frankly, people in my position or in or young broadcasters would like to hear about. In the process of writing your book, you dealt with Vin Scully, who everyone has, uh, who's been paying attention will have heard that obviously he's retiring, he's probably the best broadcaster in the history of broadcasting, according to many people. Give us a story about what makes Vin Scully great. Vin Scully? I'll tell you an ironical part. Uh, and you asked me how I got started. <laughs> Actually, he was the guy that inspired me, but I didn't know who he was. I was a junior in high school. My father was on the faculty of Boston University, which I said. We were walking the sideline, which you could do in that era, with the president, Howard Case. And we had a great quarterback at Boston University by the name of Harry Agamis. Well, if, if Boston University won the game, they were going to go big time. And so I saw this guy in the first half with a silver microphone and a raincoat. And I looked up for the first time. I said, you know, that looks like that's very interesting. I look up again in the third and fourth quarters, and it's Ben Scully. I didn't know that till years later when he and I talked about it one day at Riverfront. He kind of told me that. And I still remember, I said, you inspired me. But now what made him great? First of all, he has a unique style. He says things differently than anybody I've ever heard. And Red Barber told him one time, he said, don't tape yourself. Don't tape anybody else because you have a unique style. And the other thing about him, he's always prepared. Game's at 7 o'clock. He's there at 1 o'clock doing his homework. And the thing that makes the great ones great, they're not talking about themselves all the time. They're talking about you and the players and the coaches. And I can remember I would have called a cotton ball between the University of Houston and Notre Dame, quarterback by Joe Montana. They came back to win the game. He said, hey, I really enjoyed your call on New Year's Day of that football game. That's one of the things that made him great. Secondly, Ben Scully never aged. You look at him today, he doesn't look that different than he did when he was doing the Dodgers in 1950. But, but Ben Scully, and I've always said this, Benny along with Bob Costas, I said God touched them better in the larynx than the rest of us. This guy and those two guys are great. What makes Bobby great is the fact that he has got a great sense of humor. Great sense of humor will get you over a hump in a lot of things. He can say the same thing that maybe I would say, but he would say it in a clever fashion, and you'd be chuckling as it happened. There are only two guys I've heard that I thought were really God-given, and there was no doubt about their ability. Dick Enberg is very close to that, who just retired. But the fact remains, Ben Scully, we'll never see another like him again. We'll never see a guy can work a ball game by himself. We'll never see a ball game, and we've laughed about it many years. He will start a ball game with two out in the seventh inning, and the game will not conclude until his story is done. Yeah, <laughs> Vinny is one of a kind. You mentioned earlier that you taught Wilt Chamberlain. Give us a story of what Wilt Chamberlain was like in class. He was honest. <laughs> he was, I loved that about him. He'd tell me on interviews, he'd say, I'll either, if I'd say, hey, I need you at 3 o'clock for a thing on the Jayhawk locker room, he'd say, I'll be there. And if he said he wouldn't, he wouldn't. A guy named Bob Billings used to come in and fill in for him. 
But I was his disc jockey and his engineer, and that was the era of 78 RPM uh, vinyl records and 33s. So one night we, we were doing a show called Flipper with the Dipper, and I got the speed of the record incorrect. And he was very quick to point that out to me because I did have him in class. He says, big man, he says, you can't even do that, and I, you're asking me to do the same thing. I said, we all make mistakes, Wilson. Even you will miss a free throw down again. He thought that was pretty funny. But he was the best athlete I ever saw. I remember his sophomore year at the Kansas Relays. He high jumped six, nine and a half with a hat on. He ran the quarter mile in 47 seconds flat. And he could out the NCAA shot put champion, Bill Nieder. So he was a remarkable athlete. You know, the only thing he couldn't do, he couldn't swim. <laughs> what are some of your unusual broadcast locations, or I like to call them horror stories, where something goes horribly wrong technically and you're fighting to get the broadcast on the air, or something just weird that happened in the course of broadcasting a game? Well, I can remember when I did Kilgore, we were playing Wharton, and the coach was Johnny Frankie, and Johnny Frankie changed the uniforms on me at halftime. That was a little difficult. It was raining. That was one. When I was again at KU, and I had a little baby, and I was taking Bender out, and we went to Valley Falls, Kansas. Now, that's where my dad, Bender Methodist, preacher. And we're setting up for the game. I always get there an hour, hour and a half before. And, and this particular night, they did not line the field. So consequently, what the referee did, who was a friend of mine, we got nine or ten different colors uh, to put on the field every ten yards, and I called the game like that. So that was not easy. The other thing, now this I didn't actually have a, a site that was difficult, but my first year in Kilgore, they wanted me to recreate a basketball doubleheader. I never recreated, period, let alone a basketball game. So what we did was this. I called the coach before the game. He told me what the lineup was in the scouting report, what would happen. At halftime, an assistant coach gave me a scoring update and the trend, and then after the game, the head coach called me with one of his players, and I recreated and went behind about maybe half an hour uh, going after the game. That was a very difficult assignment because I, I've done baseball. Baseball was relatively easy, but basketball was hard, and the only reason I got it done was because he helped me. Now, when you take a look at basketball, you've got to get some trends. You've got to get some rhythm. So I sat there and called that game. And the people liked it so much that what happened was my boss said there were about 50 people came in the studio to see what I was doing. He was a little bit greedy, and he charged everybody two bucks a head to hear me do that. So I've had some interesting situations. We all have, but I learned one thing a long time ago. Don't ever complain about where your site is because nobody cares but you what the problem is. So... Now, when we prep for games, it's probably 80% of it is done on the Internet. The Internet was obviously not a thing when you started off. What was the preparation process like when you were cutting your teeth? When I was cutting my audition tape or, or starting? Whenever you want, wherever you want to describe. But my preparation hasn't changed a lot. Uh, I don't think it's changed much at all. I still do the same stuff. Like today, I called the coach at Avila. Now they're one six. We're six and zero. We've won six games in a row. We've never been behind in a football game. They've not won one. I always call the coach. I go to my coach on Tuesday. 
at 11 o'clock on Tuesday, I go down to Baker and I get my depth chart. I get a roster. I get updated stats in the box of the last game and last year's football game. Then I go to practice. I watch them practice for about an hour and a half. I have key people I talk to, coaches and players. I do the same thing on Thursday. And I get a real good read. I've got about five or six people I can talk to. They give me a read of the football game. And then get this action. My coach, Mike Grosner, comes up live prior to the ball game. From, let's say we have a ball game as we do at 6.30. That'll be on uh, Saturday night. He will actually come up at 6 o'clock between 6 and 6.15 and talk to me live. So I'm getting a lot of good insight. I've always prepared by talking to the coaches and players if you do that, you should be fairly successful. But, And I think the best quote in my book is Bob Costas saying, no matter how good you are, no matter how rich your voice is, if you prepare, it's going to be enough. If you don't prepare, it's not going to be enough. Who are your favorite people to listen to a game, just listen to a broadcast of a game? both on the national level and maybe some regional people in the Kansas area that are a little under the radar? Well, originally, the guy I always have liked to listen to is Bob Davis, retired after 32 years, voice of the Kansas Shayhawk Basketball Network. Tremendous play-by-play guy, especially in basketball. Always liked his call. Mitch Holdis, who does the Kansas City Chiefs, did Kansas State football. I thought he was just excellent. always liked to listen to him because he gives me a very clean picture, and he also gives me the scores often as I can hear it. Nationally, in baseball, Benny was the best I heard. In football, I think Joe Buck and also Aikman, Troy Aikman at the collar spot, I think they're tremendous. When I hear Bobby Costas do a game on the Major League Network, he's there with Jim Cott, who I work with at ESPN. Those are guys I like. I also think a lot of Jim Nance. I think Jim Nance is one of the really great announcers in the country. He doesn't oversell it. He gives you a good picture, and you're able to tell what's going on. And then in baseball, the guy I used to love to listen to was Ernie Harwell of the Detroit Tigers. Oh, my goodness. What a voice. He's got a southern accent. He's the type of guy that can charm you to snakes, and he would give the score every hitter. Now, those are some of the guys I like to listen to. You know, you mentioned something that you like Joe Buck, and I do as well, but for whatever reason, he gets an unfair amount of criticism from people who really don't know what they're talking about. Why do you think that is? You know know my theory on that? And I, I knew Joe as a young guy. I don't know him today, but I knew him as a young guy. I would tell him, well, don't laugh when I say this. He's making a lot more money than I ever made. First of all, I would shave the beard off. I don't know what there is about that. I don't know why guys on TV think they're more macho because they have the beard. That's the first thing I do. Secondly, if he didn't look, he looks a little cocky and arrogant. I think that's where people make a quick say, oh, this guy really thinks he's the hot stuff. I think that's the thing. I think Joe does a good job. I've heard him many hours. I like him. What I like about him is fact he doesn't sound a thing like his father. That would be a very easy thing to do. But I think that's where it comes around. You look at him when they give a quick cameo of him on camera. He kind of looks like he knows and he's looking down his nose at you. I think that's the problem. But I think he's a great broadcaster. 
Do you want to give a quick plug for your book before I let you go, where people can find it, The Art of Sportscasting? Yeah, yeah the best place they can get it, very frankly, the, uh, the name of the broadcast book, of course, is The Art of Sportscasting. It's published by Diamond Publications, and they can simply uh, go on there and get it and Google it, and they will sell it to you for 25 bucks. I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of. I know if my mother were alive, she went to heaven. My mother would be far more proud of the fact that I did that book than all the broadcasting I did. But I must tell you, I learned myself some things when I did the book. I learned always give the score. If in doubt as a broadcaster, you cannot give the score frequently enough. Secondly, I knew this, make sure you get the pronunciation correct. And the final thing that you do, always give the fundamentals. When doing a football game, give me the down and distance. Who carried the football? Who made the tackle? Basketball. Tell me who shot the ball. How many points he's got in the ball game? Same thing in baseball. What did that fly ball look like in left center field that fell for a double? But I relearned some things myself, and I think I'm a better broadcaster, frankly, for writing that book. How much do you still broadcast before I let you go? Well, I broadcast uh, Baker football, which means that I did 13 football games last year. And at the playoffs, I'm going to do at least 13 more football games this year. And I did a high school game to help out a friend. I'll do 41 basketball games, and I'll wind up doing 15 to 20 baseball games for Baker and a local high school. So I still broadcast a lot at age 82. Once again, we are visiting with Tom Hedrick. He is the author of The Art of Sportscasting, also formerly was the voice of the Kansas City Chiefs, the Cincinnati Reds, the Texas Rangers, the Dallas Cowboys, the Kansas Jayhawks, and... The Nebraska Cornhuskers also broadcast three Super Bowls. He's been around the block and literally wrote the book on sportscasting. Tom, thanks for joining us here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. My pleasure, Logan. Thanks for asking. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher. You can click on the top right of the saythedamnscore.com webpage and get email updates. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter by following radio underscore Logan or following the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash saythedamnscore. Thanks again for tuning in. And remember, next time you're on the air, say the damn score.